Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 17. The 44th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on June 25th, 2017 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Jack Crabtree and is being made available to you by Gutenberg College. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. Contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handouts number 16 and 17 Translation, Installments, 2017, Numbers 4 and 5, and Handout 18, Biblical Timeline of the History of Created Reality, accompanies this talk. We're going to be starting Hebrews uh, chapter 12. That'll be part 27, paragraph 81 in my translation. Before we get there, though, uh, if you were here last week, Bob Kramer asked me if I would draw a chart. Uh, it should have been in your email, if you on the emailing list, and there, there's the chart that Bob was asking for. Uh, let me just explain a little bit about what the point that I was trying to make. Why was I looking at the timeline at all last week? Uh, if you have the chart in front of you, or if you go to look at the chart, you'll find a two-way highway right down the middle of the timeline. That that's the major pivotal point in, in all of created reality is what I'm arguing. And notice that, that surprisingly, uh, surprisingly to me, because I have always thought about this differently, that pivotal event, that central event, that axis of created reality is not the hinge point between uh, temporal, ephemeral, mortal created reality and eternity, but rather it's the, it's the time when the kingdom of God starts. Uh, the, once we reach the return of Jesus, that, that's the point at which the kingdom of God will be established. Once we reach the return of Jesus, that then becomes uh, a whole new um, era, a whole new age. So you do have a, you do have a transition from the present age of created reality to the eternal age of created reality, but as important as that is, and that's, that is important, but as important as that is, it plays second fiddle to the transition from no kingdom of God, this present evil age, to the next age, which is the age of the Messiah, age of the messianic kingdom. So that's part of the point that I was making um, what I what I have is across the top. I have sort of pivotal events, and then I've divided history up age by age, and I th- I think I'm using it the same way the Bible uses the word age. It's not that it has a consistent meaning every time it gets used, but rather history can be divided into different ages depending upon what question you are addressing. So notice in the first one, it's the present age of created reality as opposed to the eternal age of created reality. And the issue there is, what kind of creation are we talking about? Uh, 
Are we talking about a, a creation that's subject to corruption or, an, or a creation that's not subject to corruption? Well, the, those are in two different ages. There is a created reality that's coming that will not be subject to corruption. That's the eternal created reality. But we are now in a creation that is subject to corruption. That's the present age of created reality. Then in the second one, I don't think mine, I can't read all of mine. It's not dark enough. Sorry about that. But no, the second one, the third one down, well, the second one, you have the beginning of the kingdom of God. Everything before that, uh, there is no kingdom of God. And somewhere I have it called this present evil age, but I can't read it. Oh, it's the third line down. You have, you have the world before the flood, which was a monumentally important event, a transition point in created reality. Then from Noah on, we are living as a part of the same kind of reality, when I call this the present evil age. And that's going to endure all the way up to this point when Jesus returns, and when Jesus returns, everything is going to be turned upside down. Instead of unrighteousness prevailing, righteousness is going to prevail. And that's why you have all these prophetic images of there will be war no more. Yeah, that there will be, it will be a time of peace. Peace is a big deal that gets touted by the prophets. Well, that's the kingdom of God coming into history. But the point I was making last week is notice that the kingdom of God happens before we leave the created reality that's subject to corruption. It's still a created reality that's subject to corruption, but the kingdom of God is going to be established in that very context. And it's going to continue, and the kingdom of God is always going to prevail from then on. However, eventually, the first stage of the kingdom of God, which is a part of history and a part of the creation that's subject to corruption, is going to phase into a second phase where God is going to create an entirely new creation that is no longer subject to corruption. And then the kingdom of God will endure eternally in an eternal age, in an eternal created order. So I'll, I'll leave the rest of that. Um, maybe you had a chance to look at it. Are there any questions that you would like me to address before I drop that? Yeah. So you have, during the millennial kingdom, those who believe in Jesus during this time will go on to the last eternal age, but it's not clear whether they do so immediately, right. etc. So those who come to faith wouldn't just automatically pop into... Well, we don't know. I mean, that, that's entirely possible. That would be logical for them to experience their own individual rapture upon their death, just like we are waiting to be caught up in the air to take on immortality when Jesus returns. What if someone during the millennial kingdom were to die, what happens to them? What would, it would be logical that they would be transported up and take on immortality, but I don't know the answer to that. There, there's nothing that tells us that. So, so it could be that they wait until the very end then of this present age of created reality where there's another second resurrection, and they are then taken up at that point. The problem is the only thing that talks about that second resurrection is in, is in Revelation, and it specifically describes them as being resurrected to judgment. 
So given that, I'm inclined to think that's not a resurrection of everybody righteous and unrighteous. It's only a resurrection of the, of the wicked who are being raised back to, uh, to face their, their judgment. Which means, so what happened to the righteous during the millennium then? I would assume that they had their own individual rapture, rapture but we don't, we don't know. Notice the ambiguity in the word resurrection in the Bible. All resurrection means is that you're raised up out of the grave. You don't stay in the grave. You're brought up out of the grave. But the resurrection of Lazarus is a very different event from the resurrection of Jesus. And we'll, we'll see that here in this very next verse that we look at in Hebrews. The resurrection of Jesus was Jesus taking on immortality, going to his eternal reward, beginning his eternal existence. Not so Lazarus. Lazarus came up out of the grave, but he came back into this existence, not some eternal existence. So just because the word resurrection is used doesn't necessarily imply that that's an ultimately positive result, as I think it is, it is not the case with the second resurrection in Revelation. The fourth line down, you have the pre-Pentecostal age. Uh-huh. And then it goes on to the Pentecostal age. Uh-huh. If I understand what you've said up to now, I would have guessed that the Pentecostal age would end just before Jesus' second coming. Because um, the way I've understood it before is that when um, after Jesus comes, there will be all these Im- immortal people that are walking around saying, you know, follow Jesus, but they're not terribly successful. So, but it looks like by your chart that it keeps on going through the millennial kingdom. Yeah, the reason for that is because notice that quoting a prophecy in Joel, Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, when you, you see the miraculous, dramatic display of this, of this hinge point in history where the spirit, which has been relatively inactive in created reality, now all of a sudden is going to become very active in created reality. And Peter, quoting Joel, uh, talks about how in the last days the spirit is going to be poured out on all men, but Joel means everyone in Israel. So he's talking about the people of Israel, the Jews. So granted, the, the age of the Gentiles is over, so the Spirit of God is not going to be super active among the Gentiles. We just don't know how active he's going to be. But that's not going to be the primary character of the time after Jesus returns. The time after Jesus returns, the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on God's own people, Israel. And every last one of them who survives is going to be sanctified and righteous and, and so on, as, as I would read it. And that being the case, I, I mean, it, it's just an extension of the Pentecostal age, I would argue, but the, the shift of focus has changed from the Gentiles to the Jews, and that happens when Jesus returns. Cool. And then the only other thing that I thought of when I was looking at this is I didn't see, because um, there's, a, there's a first battle of Gog and Magog right before Jesus' second coming. Is that right? Well, Yeah. Uh, that's complicated. I, I think when Isaiah is talking about the battle of Gog and Magog, I think he's talking about what elsewhere is called Armageddon, which is in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus. 
But Revelation then goes on to talk about Gog and Magog coming up against Jesus at the end of the millennial period. I don't think it's Gog and Magog at that point. I think it's just by analogy to Gog and Magog, there's going to be another battle of people who have, of nations who have arrayed themselves against Jesus to destroy him and his kingdom and his people. And Gog and Magog just becomes a symbolic way of referring to that event. So I just use the language of Revelation there called it Gog and Magog, but it's a, it's a different battle. Yeah. So when, believe, when Jesus returns and believers are raised on this paradigm, where do they go? Where do they go? Yes. I, 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 well, I, I don't know. We go the same place Jesus is right now, okay. I assume. Okay, wherever that is. Wherever that is. That and be? I haven't a clue. Okay. And... I would have said Pluto, but Pluto's been demoted. It's that's not even right, a planet. That's right. So, yeah. That's right. And when Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, what did he mean? Uh, well, I, I think he, that's like saying to the... If, if he were dying on the cross today, mm-hmm. I think what he would say is, today you will be with me in heaven, even though he doesn't believe in heaven. But I don't think he believes in paradise either. Paradise is a lone concept from, uh, I believe, Zoroastrianism. I know it's Persia, and I believe it's the Zoroastrian religion in Persia. It's a, their concept was when you die, you go before, before your afterlife starts, you get parked in a parking lot to wait for the afterlife to begin. And there's two different parking lots that you can get parked in. Paradise, which means garden in the, in the Persian, in, you get parked in the garden or, and I don't remember the name of the other one, or this other place that's not quite as luxurious and nice. If you get parked in the garden, it's in anticipation of your afterlife being a blessed afterlife. If you get parked in the other place, uh, it's not going to go so well in the afterlife. So to say to someone that today you'll be with me in paradise, in the kind of the folk religion of that day is like telling them, you have made a choice here that is going to ensure for yourself a a blessed afterlife. But I don't think he literally believes in a place called paradise. I think it's just a manner of speaking to, in a way that the guy will understand, you, you have done well for yourself here. I think you and I would readily say to, say to people, um, we, we might say of a believer, they, they, they died and went to heaven. I might say that, but I don't believe for a second that ever happens to anybody. But it, but it communicates very well to people that I think they are well positioned to have eternal life as their ultimate destiny. That, that's what I would mean by that. Okay? All right, so let's, let's go on in the argument then. Paragraph 81, it's a whole new part, and he, but it's connected with this list of people who throughout the history of the Bible have believed. And because they believe, they are acceptable to God and things are going to go well for them because they have believed in the promised reward that God has promised them. So paragraph 81, therefore we are to do so too. Um, I'm translating it a little bit different than most English translations. 
Um, they, they try to make the rest of the sentence be the supply the verb. I, I think he's saying, therefore, we too, period, and then, and then going on to say something. Uh, the, the substance of the statement is supplied by all of chapter 11. Therefore, we are to do so too, removing every encumbrance, even the sins that so readily trips us up, because we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. In keeping with perseverance, let us run the contest that lies before us by fixing our attention on the leader and finisher of this contest of belief, Jesus. He, for the sake of the joy that lay before him, endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and has been seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So basically what he's doing in this paragraph is he's painting a picture, a kind of extended metaphor of, of a running race. And he's encouraging us, he's using that picture to encourage us, um, therefore you are to run the race that all these people in chapter 11 ran, and they ran it to the end, and they ran it with perseverance, and they didn't quit, and they didn't give up. They ran all the way to the end of their lives. You, too, are to do likewise. So finish the race that has been set for you. To do that, you need to remove every encumbrance. So you can imagine running the Boston Marathon. You don't have backpacks and fatigues and guns and ammunitions and hand grenades and stuff that load you down, you, you strip down to as, as little as possible. You want to make yourself as little as, as light as possible. Is that right? <laughs> to, to run this race. What would I know about running? Like, likewise, and, and the clothing that you wear. You don't want clothing. You don't, you don't run in a skirt or a, a kilt because uh, you don't want something that you might get tangled up in and you might trip. So we are, therefore, you too, removing every encumbrance, even the sin that so readily trips us up. So he he talks about, what do I mean by an encumbrance? I mean a sin, but what might that sin do? It might entangle you. And I, I translated it trips you up, although literally it's, it might get you entangled. But what happens when you get entangled and you're running a race? You trip. Uh, even the sin that so readily trips us up because we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. What Paul is envisioning here is it's in the terms of a running a race metaphor, it's very much like the point that, Paul, uh, that Jesus was making in the parable of the soils. And he describes one of the soil as sprouting up quickly, but then eventually over time it gets choked out because weeds grow up along with it and choke it out. That's what we, he says, are to rid ourselves of, the sin that so readily entangles us. All those other preoccupations of life, all those other things in our existence that, are, that seduce us into giving them our attention, giving, making them a priority, literally. Uh, we, we make them a priority, and all of a sudden, all of my affection, all of my love, all of my focus, all of my attention is on them. And after a while, I'm not even thinking about the kingdom of God. 
I'm not even thinking about the finish line. I'm not even thinking about what I want, where I want to go. I'm preoccupied with here and now and what it has to offer me and all the things I need to worry about and take care of. And Paul's exhortation here is get, get, rid, get rid of that. And he calls it sin, I think, because uh, he has in mind especially those things in this life that seduce us away from righteousness, truth, goodness, the things that we've been called to as disciples. There are other things out there that, that call for our, invite us to, to give us their allegiance. And it would be wrong to do that because they are uh, in conflict with the very thing that we've been called to do by Jesus, our master. So we should remove these sins that so readily trip us up because we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Okay, what does he mean by that? What's the relationship between this long list of people who believe to the end of their life and this exhortation? Well, I, th- I think what he's thinking is, I, I can show you all these people in the history of the Bible who valued what God had promised them, valued the blessing that he had promised them, the reward that he said would be theirs. They valued it enough to stick to it to the end, to focus on it until the end. They, they never gave up. So they valued it, and if they valued it, uh, don't you think maybe they knew what they were doing and maybe you ought to value it too? So run the race knowing and believing what they did that the reward at the, under, at the other end is well worth the effort and the agony and uh, the sorrow that may be yours in the midst of running the race. So he adds to that then, in keeping with perseverance, let us run the contest that lies before us. So by in keeping with perseverance, he's, he's simply his way of saying, run the race like you're going to finish it. Run the race like you intend on sticking it, staying with it to the end. So in keeping with perseverance, let us run the, ca- the contest that lies before us by fixing our attention on the leader and finisher of the contest of belief, Jesus. Now, you, you're probably more familiar with that it, the, as the author and finisher of our faith. And there's just all kinds of things you can do with the author and finisher of our faith. But in keeping with the metaphor here, I think it's clear what Paul is saying. There is one who crossed the finish line first. So he's the leader. That gets translated author, but it doesn't have to mean author. In fact, I'm not even sure why they would translate it author. It, it means uh, the one who's out ahead, the one who's leading the way, the one, and in this case, the one who is the first place finisher. The the leader who has actually finished the journey completely and has crossed the finish line. So let's keep our eyes on the winner of this race, Jesus, the one who got there first. Now, why? He goes on to say, he, for the sake of the joy that lay before him, endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and has been seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, well, what was the joy that was set before him or that lay before him? The joy that lay before him is, Jesus, obey me, 
and I will seat you at my right hand and make you king of kings and lord of lords in my kingdom for all of eternity. That was the joy set before him. That's the reward he expected. That's what had been promised him. Because that had been promised him, what did he do? He endured the cross, disregarding the shame. It was a humiliating experience. It was a defeating experience. It was a painful experience. There wasn't nothing fun about the cross. But he was willing to go through this not very fun experience because the reward to him, if he would do so, was that he would be king of kings and lord of lords. He would be exalted to the right hand of God and be uh, king of kings and lord of lords. Well, why are we looking at him? Because that's already happened. He has received his reward. And I think what Paul is thinking about in particular is not only was he resurrected, but he ascended into the, into the sky, which was a kind of lived-out parable, if you will, of him going to take his place in the heavens at the right hand of God, having received from God the authority now to, to reign on his behalf as his Messiah, as his king. So he's a great example for us because... Any other, anybody else in chapter 11, they've run the race to the end, and they believed, they remained faithful, but while they ran to the end, we don't know the outcome of their existence yet. They're in the grave. They're just sitting there in the grave doing nothing, conscious of nothing, presumably. So did they make it? Did God give them their reward? Well, we saw in the very last verse, no, not yet. God's waiting to give them their reward the same time he gives us our reward. And in God's purpose, it was important that he just put them on hold because the reward that he has in store for all of us is not an individual reward, but a corporate reward, and it's going to require all of God's people to receive it together. So they're sitting in the grave waiting for the day when God will establish, I'm arguing, the kingdom, the messianic kingdom here in history. The day is going to come where the messianic kingdom in history is going to be established, and all who are in Christ, all who belong to him, will then be brought into the enjoyment and the experience of that together at the same time. So we know that they don't have it yet. But there's one exception to that. Jesus has already, been, has already taken on immortality, is already in his eternal existence somewhere, and is simply waiting for the time when God says, okay, we're at that pivot point in history. We are going to begin the kingdom of God now. And the one who has qualified himself to be king of the kingdom of God will then be sent back into history, and it's at that time that he will establish the kingdom that Abraham was waiting for, Isaac was waiting for, Jacob was waiting for, Moses was waiting for, and everyone in chapter 11 was waiting for that day. Okay. But, but when things get tough, when things get hard, I can look at Jesus and remember, as hard as they are, they're not as hard for me as they got for Jesus. 
And he, because of a reward that he anticipated for himself, he stuck it out. He endured the cross. He willingly allowed himself to be subjected to that torture because of a reward that awaited him. And we know he's going to get that reward because of uh, what happened to him, his resurrection and his ascension. We see objective, concrete evidence that he that God is giving him his reward. Okay. So the whole thing is an exhortation for me to follow Jesus' example and endure the hard stuff because what God has promised me is well worth it. And I'm not going to be disappointed if I, if, if I live in obedience to him as hard as it is because what he's going to reward me with is valuable and significant. Now he makes a further comment about Jesus. He continues on to talk about how if we look at him, what do we see? Consider carefully the one who persevered through such hostility from sinners against himself to the end that you not grow weary and fail in your personal resolve. You have not yet encountered opposition to the point of blood as you experience conflict with sin. Uh, It's been really tempting to me over the years because of the way the English translations have usually rendered this that I thought he was probably talking about Gethsemane, how his own inner struggle with the possibility of sinning against God, he was wrestling with, do I want to do it or do I not want to do it? And, And that is an incredibly poignant moment. I mean, the most poignant moment in the whole Bible, I think. God, I really don't want to do this thing that you've asked me to do, but yet not my will, but your will be done. I mean, you, you don't get more poignant than that. And that, that's, that's obviously a model for all of us. But that's not exactly what Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about is uh, the struggle of sinners against himself is persecution, is hatred, is antagonism by sin and evil in the world against the righteous, the very thing that Paul's readers are confronting. I mean, that's what he's writing about and what he's writing to them for is to encourage them, so you're persecuted, you're getting thrown in prison, you're getting ripped off, you're getting killed. Okay, so was Jesus. He was persecuted too. The sinners of the world hated him and they strung him up on the cross and they tortured him and they killed him. That hasn't happened to you. I mean, he's obviously generalizing. There are indeed, I'm sure, Christians for whom that has happened. But as he generalizes his reading audience, they're they're not being crucified. They're being thrown in prison. So they're saying, well, consider Jesus. Carefully consider the one who persevered through the hostility from sinners against himself that he persevered through, namely the cross. And do that to the end that you not grow weary and fail in your personal resolve. Keep your resolve, just as Jesus did, through harder circumstances than you're facing. So take, take some heart from his example. You have not yet encountered opposition from sinners against yourself uh, to the point of blood. I think he means death there, to the point of death, as you experience conflict with sin, that is with sinners who are out to get you and are persecuting you. Okay. Now he interjects, we might ask the question, but, okay, but why? (laughs) 
Why, why is this happening to me? Why, why is it necessary that I have to endure this kind of suffering and sorrow and tragedy and disappointment and everything that I'm experiencing? Well, he answers that in the next paragraph. Indeed, have you failed to take notice of the exhortation that is addressed to you as sons? And he quotes Proverbs 3. My son, do not think lightly of the training of the Lord, and do not give up when you are reproved by him. For the Lord trains the one whom he loves, and he scourges every son whom he acknowledges. Persevere in his training, Paul says. God treats you as sons. Now who is the son whose father does not train him? So if you are without the training of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Okay, the the point that he's making... Well, let's go one more paragraph. Furthermore, we had the fathers of our physical existence for our trainers, and we respected them. Shall we not, to an even greater extent, be subordinate to the father of our spirits and receive life? Now they, on the one hand, trained us in accord with what seemed best to them for the few days of our brief life here. But he, on the other hand, trains us for what is even better, to the end that we might share in the holiness brought about by him. On the one hand, all training at the time does not seem to be joyful, but rather distressful. Yet, on the other hand, later, to those who have been exercised by it, it pays off in the peace-yielding fruit of Dikaiosune. Okay, here he's making an analogy between our earthly father and our divine transcendent father. The transcendent father, who's the creator of my being, is, is training me to one goal. My earthly father was training me to a different goal. My earthly father was training me so that I'd be prepared for life in this world, as best, as best that father understood how to prepare me. Let me back up for just a second. I'm, I'm using the word training. Uh, most English translations have discipline, which is fine. But, but the problem is um, when we think of discipline and parenting, we think we put too much emphasis on punishment, too much emphasis on reproof and correction. Now, that's not absent in, in Paul's idea here. But reproof and correction is not enough. It's not understanding enough of what God is up to. What God is up to is preparing me for something, for the, for a sanctify, he's, he's sanctifying me, preparing me for eternity, and, and everything that happens to me is to that end. He's not necessarily reproving me. He's not necessarily correcting me. He might be. I might do something evil, and he wants to get my attention, and he bring something into my life to get attention, and I realize, yeah, I'm, I'm on the wrong track. I'm not thinking about this right. I'm not behaving correctly. So he may do that. But there are other times I go through hard times just because they're hard times. I'm not being corrected. I'm not being punished in that sense. I'm being trained like a good coach trains an athlete. Crabtree, one more lap around the track. But I didn't do nothing wrong. <laughs> no, you didn't do anything wrong, but you want to run the race and win or not? Do you, do you want to succeed at what I want you to succeed at or not? You need to train. 
And training, no matter how you cut it, is not fun. It stresses you. It pushes the limits. It's arduous. It's hard work. But it pays off in getting you ready to compete. Your earthly father would do that at times, would, would give you a task or give you an assignment or require something of you that stretched you and pushed the limits and um, made you grow up, made, made you and, and thereby prepared you to live this life in this world in the manner that your earthly father thought, thought you needed to be prepared for. What is God doing? Exactly the same thing, he says. But God's agenda is not to prepare you for life in this world. God's agenda is to sanctify you, uh, is to burn into the inner depths of your being wisdom, to push deep into who you are a desire for what we ought to desire, a passion for what we should have a passion for, to make us weird, distinctive kinds of human beings in this world who, who march to the beat of a different drum because we see life differently, we want different things, we think different things, we believe different things, we have different priorities. Well, how does all that happen? It happens through the thick and thin of life that is crafted and created by our Father, the Father of our spirits, he calls it, who is, is training us is preparing us, is making us into those people who are sanctified, that is to say, who have the marks of being people that God is setting aside to go into eternity rather than destruction. Sanctified, being given that special uh, divine given role that sets us apart from the role that the rest of humanity has, which is to be uh, foils for God's justice, righteous justice, and condemnation. If we're not going to be a foil for his righteous condemnation, we're instead going to be set apart for the eternal kingdom of God, then the process of making us into those people begins now, right right now in our lives. And it's through training that God makes us fit and prepared for that distinctive role that he's given to us. He calls us the father of our spirits. By spirits there, he simply means, um, I mean, think of a human being. A human being really, there's two major parts of what makes me me. There's the visible part, my body, and there's the person that I am, the person that gets expressed through this body. The, the way the Bible describes that person is not atypically by using the word spirit to describe that. So God is the father of our personhood, of our, of our individual personal identity as people. Okay? On the one hand, all training at the time, at the time that you're going through the training, does not seem to be joyful, but rather distressful. Yet, on the other hand, later, after we have endured the training, to those who have been exercised by it, and it's interesting that he uses the word exercise there, or the, the Greek word that I've translated exercise there, because it's, that's, it's a word that's typically associated with athletes, which I think uh, is in keeping with what I've said. This is training that we're talking about here. 
yes, parents train as well, but another kind of training that's an apt metaphor is the training that athletes undergo. Yet on the other hand, later, to those who have been exercised by it, it pays off in the peace-yielding fruit of dikaiosune. Okay, what does he mean by that? It pays off in the fruit of dikaiosune. Well, what he dikaiosune, I think, is to be brought to a, a state where we know where we stand, we stand to be forgiven by God, pardoned of my evil and my sinfulness and my depravity when I stand before the judgment seat. And when I, when I know that that's the state that I'm in, then I have what Paul calls dikaiosune. God is going to declare me dikaios at the judgment and not adikaios, not dikaios. And to be dikaios at the judgment is um, let him into my kingdom. Don't, don't hold the fact that he's such a miserable, depraved jerk against him. Let him into my kingdom anyway. That's to be dikaios. So pardoned, forgiven, all kinds of synonyms that go with that. Well, so notice what he's saying is the connection is in order, in order to be a person who's going to be forgiven one day, that's why we go through this training that God takes us through. It's only people with the right sort of heart the right sort of inwardness, who are going to be dikaios in the eyes of God at the judgment. Well, how do you get that right sort of heart? God instills it through us through this, this program of training that he takes us through. But let's just take something out of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Well, how do you and I ever come to a point where we hunger and thirst after righteousness? God has to rub our nose in unrighteousness and evil until it stinks in our nostrils and we begin to long for something better and something other and something different. And we decide, I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to live in that kind of world. I don't like this existence this present evil age that I live in, so filled and shot through with unrighteousness. So we learn to hate evil for its own sake, and we learn to love righteousness for its own sake. But you don't just wake up one day and go, I I think I'm going to love righteousness rather than evil. God has to train you. Your passions need to be trained. And this process that he's talking about is the process that God takes us through to train our very passions. He is, we are working out our sanctification as God, my trainer, is training me in the right sort of way for me to become sanctified. That's just one example, but that's the sort of thing that I think he has in mind here. So it pays off, but there, you do not have dikaiosune if you don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. So how does this training pay off? It, it creates in me, it instills in me, it imbues in me all of those attributes that mark me as someone who has dikaiosune, who is going to one day be acceptable to God at the judgment seat. Okay, he says it pays off in the peace-yielding fruit of dikaiosune, I'm torn about how to take that. There's two ways to take it. Both of them make perfectly good sense. I'm just not sure which way Paul intended it. 
On the one hand, Paul clearly at times uses the Greek word arene, which I have translated peace here, to be the equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. So it could be that he's saying it pays off in the shalom yielding fruit of dikaiosune. And what, what he means by then is the training makes me, grants me dikaiosune, and dikaiosune is what will one day lead to me being granted shalom. And there, I think, shalom in that sense is what we typically call eternal life. The, the fullness and the abundance and the, yeah, just the, the full, full, authentic life of someone that God has made a complete human being. That, that's shalom. And, and put in an environment and a context that is con- conducive to everything good and righteous. The other possibility, the peace-yielding uh, fruit of Dikaiosune would simply be Paul you also uses a reine to talk about our reconciliation with God. We are no longer antagonistic and at war with God. God is not antagonistic toward me nor me toward him. Peace has been created between me and God. Would Dikaiosune lead to peace? Well, absolutely. It's almost synonymous with it forgiveness and reconciliation go hand in glove. You don't have one without the other. So he could be using peace in that sense, the reconciliation yielding fruit of Dikaiosune. Both are certainly true. Both are certainly something that he might say here. They, they, they would both make sense in this context. So I'm not sure which he intended. Therefore, he says... Set your drooping hands and feeble knees straight again and set a straight course for your feet lest your lame condition wander off. Might it rather be restored? Again, he's still within the context, or I guess I should say he's back within the metaphor of the race again. You know, I'm running this marathon, super marathon, and my, my legs are weak, uh, my my whole body is is exhausted. I I can barely take another step. Every every cell of my body is screaming. Sit down by the side of the road and quit. Just stop, would you? Stop. <laughs> don't don't do this to yourself anymore. And in that context, he's saying, take your wobbly legs and feet and s- see the finish line and set them straight toward the finish line. Uh, don't let your, he calls it lameness, but this is a lameness of, of weariness, of fatigue. Don't let your fatigue uh, make you stray off the course. Know where you want to go and run straight at it and don't stop. Don't let yourself take a break. Don't let yourself rest. Don't let yourself, uh, or more importantly, don't let yourself quit. Keep going. Now remember, I mean, this should be obvious, but remember, what, what we're not quitting is we're not quitting in believing and hoping in the reward that God has put in front of me. And to believe in it and hope in it means to want it. Don't stop wanting it. Don't stop believing it's going to happen. Don't, uh, don't let anything interfere with your longing and your desire and your confidence 
that God is going to give you that longing and desire that, that is uh, motivating you to run. Okay? Uh, 86. With all men, pursue peace. Now, I have, I have turned this around. I've translated this differently. Most of our English translations have pursue peace with all men. The problem is that's a non sequitur here. Peace with other people is not even particularly in the picture. I mean, it would be really secondary and really tangential. The peace that he's talking about is the peace of being reconciled with God, of being right with God. He wants us to pursue that, pursue dikaiosune, pursue peace, pursue sanctification, which he will also He's going to say that later, I think, but he's going to talk about pursue sanctification. They all come to the same thing. Keep, keep on keeping on aiming at being right with God when you, when you get to the end of your life so that you are reconciled with him and he is going to grant you life in the eternal kingdom of God. Pursue that. As Paul puts in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Go to work on that. Keep, keep focused on working on that. But what he says is, do that with all men. And I, I think what he means by that is, just, just take this group here this afternoon. You could charge on ahead without me. You could pursue your sanctification. You could pursue eternal life and the promised reward and so on without me and leave me in the dust and leave me behind. But... Paul Paul's saying, don't do that. But let's all get there. So if someone needs a little encouragement, needs a little help, needs a little rebuke, needs a little instruction, instruct them, rebuke them, bring them along, bring them along with you so that together all of us are pursuing peace with God. Now, why do I say that? Because look at what he goes on to say. Okay, well, first of all, with all men pursue peace, even the sanctification apart from which no one will see our Lord. So I think, I think he's connecting peace and sanctification there. Who is it that's reconciled with God and has peace with their creator? The one who's sanctified. That's who, who, that's who has it. So to pursue peace is to pursue sanctification. So pursue peace, even the sanctification apart from which no one will see our Lord. And there, seeing our Lord is simply his way of talking about uh, having the promised reward. And I think literally what he means is to enter into an experience of the kingdom of God when our Lord returns and is established on the throne and rules in Israel, for me to be around, to see that and see our Lord in his role, in, in action, that's not a reward that I'm going to get unless I'm one of the sanctified. So he's telling me to pursue that sanctification, which is also connected with peace with God. Pursue peace with God, even the sanctification apart from which no one will see our Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That's the all men part. See, pursue sanctification with all men, not just on your own, not, not just by yourself. Bring other people along to it. See to it that no one out there 
fall short of the grace of God. And by that, I think he means come short of being sanctified such that God's grace granting them forgiveness and therefore ultimately life is theirs, that they enjoy that grace. Don't let anyone fall short of that. Now he gives us two examples of ways that we could fall short of it and we're to see to it that no one does. The first is that no root of bitterness by springing up caused trouble and through it the many be defiled. Okay? My apologies to Bill, Bill Gothard. My apologies to Bill Gothard. But this has nothing to do with bitterness of spirit. If we go back to Deuteronomy 29.18, I, I won't take us there, but go back and look at it in its context. What Moses is talking about is basically idolatry, where that what's springing up are an allegiance to other gods, other gods that are brought along with the people of Israel and they start worshiping other gods and serving other gods and following other gods and so on. Um, Idolatry, he's implying, both Moses in Deuteronomy and Paul here, is contagious. And the whole group can be defiled by idolatry that springs up in our midst. If I start uh, living a life where I am serving some, something else other than God and Jesus, I give you permission to serve that something else or something else again other than God and Jesus. And being the depraved people we are, uh, all we need is a little permission, and we'll go there. We're ready to go there right now, but all we need is a little permission to do that. So how do we safeguard idolatry just spreading through our midst is we offer as an example to one another what in the Beatitudes he calls purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That when, when I have a single-minded commitment and devotion, a single focus, this is what I want, I don't want nothing else, there ain't nothing else worth it to me, that's what I want, and I'm willing to sacrifice anything else to get it. And if I have to give up everything else in order to get it, that's okay, because that's what I want. When I model that, and you model that, and we are all modeling that for each other, we stay clear-focused. But when, when, my, when I become double-minded, and my allegiance is torn in a variety of different directions, then we all think that's okay. I can have all kinds of interests and priorities, and... You know, it's fine to follow Jesus and all that, but I don't want to take it too seriously, right? I don't want to take it so seriously that it, like, interferes with my life. No, absolutely that's what you want to do. And that's absolutely what each and every one of us should do, is let our lives be interfered with by our single-minded commitment to following Jesus and obeying him. And then the second one is that there be no one who play, um, your English translations mostly have no immoral person, immoral or godless, godless? okay? Uh, I think my, the, wor- the words are, the word for a prostitute, a fornicator, and the word for the common hoi polloi. So, that there be no one who plays the prostitute, even a vulgar, that is a common, ordinary person, 
an unenlightened person, like Esau, who sold his own rights as the firstborn in exchange for one single meal. Now, why does he use the word pornos? Or I think that's what he uses. Why does he use that word? Why prostitute? Why, why fornicator? I think it's because uh, that's what Esau did. Esau took something valuable that he had. He had there was the possibility of this blessing that God himself, the, the true and real God of all of creation, had made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham passed it on to Isaac as a birthright and as a blessing that he passed on to him. And Isaac was going to do that again. And Esau, early in his life, said, I'm hungry. Jacob, you want my birthright? Trade you my birthright for a bowl of soup. Look how it trivializes, completely trivializes what it is that God had granted uh, the patriarchs. It was worthless to Esau. He wasn't interested. It wasn't important. I'm hungry now. And because I'm hungry now, I'd rather have a bowl of soup than this eternal blessing that would give meaning and significance and glory to my entire existence. What a, what a perverse priority. But that was Esau's priority. And I, I think he calls him, as I say, a vulgar person, because it just makes him one of the masses. It is only a very chosen few human beings who wouldn't make the choice that Esau made. Only a very few. And you are as lucky as can be if you are one of those few. If God has given you eyes to see, I don't care how hungry I am, I don't care how much I desire something right now, it's not worth it compared to the promise that God has made for me. I want what God has promised me, and this, this is inconsistent with that. Me throwing that away, sacrificing that, in order to have a little bit of pleasure right now would be, would be absurd, would be ridiculous. The very thing that most of humanity is going to do, that's the bargain that almost every human being makes, the common man makes that. But the enlightened one, the special one, the chosen one, the distinct one is the one who makes a different choice. So that there be no one who plays the prostitute and sells this precious blessing, this precious promised reward that God has given us, sells it for just something cheap. Make sure no one plays the prostitute, even a vulgar person like Esau, who sold his own rights as the firstborn in exchange for one single meal. Now you know that even afterwards when he wanted to inherit the blessing, now he's talking about at the end of his life. So that happened early and earlier in his life. When it came at the end of his life, Jacob, it came, uh, Isaac was dying, and it was time for him to get the blessing. And Jacob and his mother uh, pulled a fast one and cheated Esau out of his blessing. And Esau wept for it. You know, that's what he's referring to here even though he solicited it with tears. Please, can I not have the blessing or a blessing or a blessing like that one? But he found no place for repentance. And I think what Paul is, how he's reading the text is, sure, he regretted not getting it, but did, did he ever really come to a point where he repented of his priorities? Not really. 
Esau is a person who would be willing to have his cake and eat it too, or have his bowl of, say, of soup and eat it too. He's, he wouldn't mind having the promised blessing, but he never repented of the folly and evil and wickedness of the priority that he chose. There's no evidence that he repented of that, at least, at least not at the time he was soliciting it with tears. Okay, so this whole section then is about let's not, let's not just do this for ourselves. Let's bring other people along with us and see to it, therefore, that they not fall into idolatry and that they don't bring idolatry into the community and corrupt all the rest of us with idolatry. Let's keep idolatry rooted out and let's not be evil in the way that Esau was, who so trivialized and devalued the promised reward that, that, lay, that was his inheritance, that he would give it up for something cheap and, and worthless. See to it that no one does that. Now, how do we do that? Obviously, I can't choose for you and you can't choose for me. I don't have access to that switch inside your will that makes you make the right choices, and you can't do that for me. You don't have access to that. But I can plead with you, and I can teach you, and I can exhort you, and I can use reason, argument, evidence, and so on to try to persuade you to not be a fool. But that's all I can do. Fools will be fools, but I can plead with you not to be. And I think that's what he's in encouraging all of us to do. Okay, we've got a few minutes for your comments or questions. Hey, Jack, if the motivation in verse 1 for me to, to continue and to finish the race is that I can enter, you know, eternity, I can enter that, that uh, promised blessing, then why the crowd of witnesses? Why, why do you think Paul brings that in? Um, I think because they they set an example, and the significance of their example is each and every one of them believed that what we're all looking forward to is worth it. They wouldn't have behaved as they had behaved if they didn't think it was valuable and worth it. So uh, witness the, the word for witnesses is they're, they're giving testimony. Well, what is it that they're testifying to? I think they're testifying to the value of God's promises. And they're doing that through their life, through the way they live their life. Okay, so if I understand you, it's, it's not a crowd of witnesses who are witnessing my race. It's a, it's a crowd of witnesses that are testifying to why the race is worth running. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. that's Be- helpful. Because the, because the crowd of witnesses that he has in mind, I think, is everybody back in mm-hmm. chapter 11. They're dead and gone, and they're not around to watch me. But what they, what they have done throughout the history of the Bible is that they have borne witness to the fact they're saying to anyone who will pay attention and listen, what God has promised is worth it. Hang in there, persevere, and wait for it. That's, that's their testimony, I think. Cool. Thanks. Was uh, Esau's birthright tied to the land and therefore tied to the promise to Abraham about the promised land? 
That's how I read it. Okay. That what God promised Abraham is what is what in his blessing and his birthright he's passing on to. It's a transferable blessing. So Esau's action was more of um, to heck with the future. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. not sure this is ever even going to happen. I'm mm-hmm. not really impressed by the whole promise thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll wander the land anyway. I'm a wild guy. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, look how that rings true in our own experience. I mean, all of us are just that far. That the, the future seems so far away and so abstract that it wouldn't take much for me to say, ah, I, I don't see it. I, I'm going to live for now. Carpe diem and all that. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it now. I'm going to go for the gusto now because that other stuff, it's probably just a fairy tale. It's probably nothing to it. It's probably not, you know, just just what Christians have taught us to believe. But there's nothing to it. I could go there if I got weary enough. So that that's what we need to that's what we need to keep clear on. Is this is not a fairy tale. This is real life. This is reality. Your your existence is going to end one way or the other. And the only control I have over which way it ends is by by being right with God, and that involves keeping clear that there is an eternity out there, and I could be there, and I could live forever in the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God. Okay? All right. Thanks.